Father, what a privilege, privilege it is to gather this morning as your people and confess these truths that we've confessed and sung this morning, along with the saints around the world and through the ages who've called on the name of the Lord. Lord, we gather here in this place now and pray to you, Father, the one from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And Lord, we ask that according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. Lord, despite the turmoil around us in the world, calm our fears. Lord, despite the war within us, subdue our passions. Lord, as we open your word now, show us Jesus. That being rooted and grounded in love, that we here today would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, open with me to the Gospel of Luke, if you have your Bible, chapter 6. Uh, we're going to finish up chapter 6 this morning. If you're new with us, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Luke, a portion of the Gospel of Luke in chapters 4 through 9, looking at the ministry of Jesus. Uh, as Christian disciples, <clears throat> we can so easily get sort of wrapped up in, the, in what you might say are sort of the trappings of Christian faith. Uh, good things, important things. Um, but not the most central thing. Uh, we can get uh, really uh, engaged in, in what precisely we believe, which is very important. Christianity has a lot to say about what we believe. We can get really engaged in the things we ought to be doing, which is important. We're going to talk about that today. Christ makes certain claims on us, gives us commands and instructions for how we're to live. But at the center of all those things is the person of Jesus Christ. And we just want to continually be coming back and sort of recentering our faith and reorienting our lives around Jesus. And so to that end, we're spending these weeks in this portion of the gospel of Luke. And today we'll direct our attention to chapter 6, verses 39 through 49. So read along with me in Luke 6. Jesus also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First... Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. 
Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. When all of these uh, families are on stage for child dedications, I think you can tell which kids belong to which parents because there's a kind of family resemblance. Uh, at the reception later, you can probably even uh, sneak by. Now, as Philip said, dare not touch any food, but you can walk by and observe uh, that, that probably you might even be able to match up some grandparents with some children because there's a resemblance. They look like the people they belong to. And thankfully, all my kids look like their mother, and they can thank God for that. Uh, even adopted children who may not resemble their parents physically, will begin to take on some of the characteristics of their personalities. Family resemblances, you might say, are inevitable. Well, as we come to the end of Jesus' sermon in Luke 6, he shows us what people in the family of God look like. Through faith in Christ, God's word tells us we are adopted into Christ's family. We're united with him and made children of God the Father. And as children by adoption, our resemblance isn't physical. But we take on certain characteristics of the one we belong to. Now, let me show you why I say that that's what Jesus is getting into here. In verse 40, if you look at your Bible, Jesus says a disciple will be like his teacher. In verse 44, he says, each tree is known by its fruit. Verse 47, he says, I will show you what he is like. So Jesus here is answering the question, what does the life of a person who follows Jesus look like? So the title of the sermon today is The Life of Discipleship. The Life of Discipleship. And now Jesus paints that picture with three images that convey this message. That the life of discipleship is an examined life, an authentic life, and an enduring life. The life of discipleship is an examined life, an authentic life, and an enduring life. Now before we get into that, just to be clear, you were here last week, Robin made an important point as he talked to us about uh, this Sermon on the Plain, it's called, which is that this is not about how you become a disciple. This is about how you live once you are a disciple. Becoming a disciple of Jesus and entering into his family happens through faith alone, through, through faith in Christ alone. It actually acknowledges right at the beginning that there's actually nothing we can do in the way that we live that would put us in right relationship with God simply by our performance. 
Uh, There is simply no way that you and I can sort of pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and sort of increase our uh, moral performance in order to then get in God's good graces. Because the fact is all uh, people in this room have fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way that we can be restored to him is through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who lived the life of perfect obedience to God that you and I have not, And who died the death on the cross uh, that you and I, because of our sin, deserve. And who rose from the grave in victory over sin and over death and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So that now you and I, through trusting in the finished work of Jesus, can have his righteousness accredited to us. And have the penalty for our sin accredited to him. And when we trust in him, when we simply believe in him... We are then brought into relationship with the Father. And we are filled with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And we then seek to walk in his ways. We we seek to live like the person that we've become. And the Bible calls it increasingly being conformed into the image of Christ. So this sermon on discipleship in Luke chapter 6 that Jesus is giving is not about how a person becomes a disciple. It's about how you live once you are one. Living like Jesus happens as we give ourselves to a lifetime of obedience and faith. And first, Jesus tells us that that lifestyle of discipleship is an examined life. And more specifically, we might say, a self-examined life. Jesus is calling his disciples, he's calling us, to a way of life that is entirely countercultural. We heard last week that in this last section, he addresses the object of the disciples' love. You remember Robin opened up that portion of God's word to us and helped to see it's a call to, to love not just the people we are expected to love, but to love your enemies. Well, now Jesus is addressing the object of the disciples' scrutiny. And in both cases, the task itself is not especially difficult. The object of it is. He says, disciples of Jesus are not to be quick to scrutinize others. They are to be quick to scrutinize themselves. He says, before you go off instructing other people and trying to lead other people and pointing out the problems in other people's lives, Jesus says, you got to start with yourself. Otherwise, you'll be like the blind leading the blind. So apparently, as Jesus looked out over his audience that day, one of the main issues that needed to be addressed among them was hypocrisy. Uh, That problem among the people of God is not new. In verse 46, he, he asks them, very bold question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Now, in some cases in his audience, that hypocrisy is flagrant. Uh, We see that with the Pharisees, right? We've talked about how they are openly, 
um, somewhat unashamedly distorting the word of God in order to manipulate people and lay heavy burdens on them. And that's right out in the open. They don't see it, but Jesus does, and he repeatedly calls it out. But in other cases, that hypocrisy, you might say, is more latent. It's more under the surface, and it only sort of bubbles up under pressure. So just think about who Jesus is speaking to in this moment. In Luke 6, Peter is in the audience. I wonder if Peter was frustrated by other people's lack of resolve. Certain portions in the Gospels where it seems that's a temptation for him. Well, Peter himself would deny Christ. Thomas is in the audience. I wonder if Thomas is frustrated by other people's lack of confidence in who Jesus says he is. And yet he's the one who is now famously known as Doubting Thomas for refusing to believe in the resurrection until he could see the scars in his hands. Judas is in Jesus' audience. I wonder if he was frustrated by what he perceived to be other people's lack of loyalty. Of course, he betrayed Christ. James and John are there in the audience. I wonder if they were bothered by how people would use Jesus for their own gain. You know, like those people who showed up for the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is miraculously passing out fish and, and loaves. And it says the very next day, as Jesus begins to teach, that crowd is gone. Meal ticket has run dry. There's nothing else they're getting from him today, and so they're out of here. I wonder if that bothered James and John, who were the very ones who would go on to jockey for position in Christ's kingdom. Who gets to sit at his right? Who gets to sit at his left? In addition to that sort of latent hypocrisy, there's different kinds of people in the audience, some with some old allegiances that... Maybe are still hanging on a bit. Many of them, it would seem, according to what Jesus addresses here, still had a, a little bit of an agenda. Uh, they had become Jesus' disciples, but they wanted to turn at the microphone now. And one of them is known as Simon the Zealot. That means he was known for being someone who was really uh, uh, passionate about Israel's independence against their Roman oppressors. Man, then you've got Matthew. He's, he's associated with the Romans because he's a tax collector. He's in league with who those zealots consider to be the bad guys. The Pharisees are in the mix of this crowd. And Jesus warns them, his new young disciples, hey, before you start throwing your newfound uh, disciple of Jesus weight around, take a look at yourself first. These people in this audience have the equivalent of like a quick Google search on what it means to be Jesus' disciples. And now they want to turn at telling everybody else what that ought to look like. And so Jesus says, whoa, 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 um, slow down. When my mother got a sense of this unmerited confidence in me, she would correct me with one of her southern expressions. Like you're getting too big for your britches. Anybody here heard that one before? Or here, this is an even deeper cut in the southern roots. Don't get above your raisin, right? Uh, you were raised at this level, son. You don't try to come in here like you're up here. You get down with us. Jesus is coming to these disciples and says, guys, you're getting a little above your raisin. You're getting too big for your britches. You got to get down and examine yourself before you go telling everybody else what you got to do. 
And he does this in two ways. Now, this is a fascinating portion of scripture. We don't have any emojis in the Bible. We don't know what Jesus' emotions were like necessarily as he's communicating different things. But if there's any place in scripture where it seems like Jesus is being funny, it's got to be here. Like, this sounds like something right out of a sketch comedy routine. He says, uh, first, you got a blind guy leading another blind guy around until they both fall in a pit. And then he says, you've got a man trying to help another man get something out of his eye when he's got a two by four sticking out of his. And so with this huge log jutting out, he's like walking around trying to get this little thing out of somebody else's. Uh, it's, it's hyperbolic to be funny and to make the point. And the point is, disciple, don't worry about leading everybody else until you first learn to lead yourself. Now, if you're hearing this and you are thinking, I am so glad that this other person who's here this morning is finally hearing this message. <laughs> so they'll finally start dealing with their own stuff. Friend, you've got a log. Let me just warn you, that thing is jutting out this morning, right? No, this is for each of us. Let me also say, uh, sometimes I think when people hear this, one question is, is well, is Jesus kind of gaslighting us here? Uh, like, is Jesus saying it's always my fault? That if I see something else and somebody else, that there's nothing to that, and, and it's really just always, always, always on me. Jesus most certainly does not deny that other people have issues or that at times we will need to be the ones who help point those things out to them. But he says we can't perceive them clearly enough to be helpful to them if we have not first examined ourselves. So verse 42, he says, you hypocrite, first Take that log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that's in your brother's eye. There is a purpose. There is a, an end game of helping your brother, helping your sister. But to do that effectively, we've got to start with ourselves. And isn't it true, one commentator said the slight imperfection in other people is often more apparent to us than the large one in ourselves. So Jesus starts there. The life of discipleship is a self-examined life. Secondly, it's also an authentic life. Let me read that to you again in verse 43. He said, for no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. You don't get figs from thorn bushes. You don't get grapes from a bramble bush. No, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Jesus says a tree is known by its fruit. You can tell what it is by what comes from it. Uh, the tree itself hasn't changed. It has been whatever it is. 
Uh, It has been where grapes come from. It has been where figs come from all along. But when the fruit comes, it makes that tree identifiable. I had this experience recently uh, in my own yard. Uh, Bought a home a couple years ago. We moved and and, um, there's a all this old landscaping. The house was built in the 60s and we didn't know what everything was. You know, some of you guys pull out your app and you take a picture of it and the internet tells you what it is, but we weren't that advanced. And, and so we just waited until the next spring and, and all of a sudden these things start bearing fruit. And 4th of July, my kids are picking blueberries off a bush in the back of the yard that we didn't even know was a blueberry bush. But the fruit made it identifiable. Jesus says that that our hearts and our lives function in similar ways. That it's not our, our actions that determine who we are, but it's, it's what's in here in our hearts that then is revealed in our actions that identifies us. He says our hearts produce things. So human hearts are like little factories they produce stuff and and what our hearts produce are consistent with this is fascinating language Jesus chooses it's consistent with what our hearts treasure whether evil or good so he's saying actions don't just happen all of a sudden in isolation You don't just show up and this thing comes out of your mouth in one moment or you respond to this situation in such and such a way. But that those things are the the things our hearts produce based on what they treasure. So if you and I store up demeaning, condescending thoughts about our spouse, about our friend, about our coworker, store those things up privately, those things will have a way inevitably of spilling over in how we treat them. And according to verse 45, the the fruit, the action that most clearly identifies where our heart is, is what we say. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So Jesus is calling us to pursue not just a change of speech, but a change of heart that comes from having a new kind of treasure as disciples. Probably the best illustration of this kind of thing I've heard, which I've shared, I think, with you before, comes from a Christian counselor named Paul Tripp. And he talks about what happens if you try to bear better fruit in your life, but you don't pursue an authentic change of heart. And he says it's as if you uh, are looking out your window and you see a fruit tree, an apple tree, and the fruit, the apples on that tree are rotten. And that doesn't look good and it smells bad and there's flies everywhere and you want nice apples on your apple tree. And so you go back into the pantry and you grab a bag of apples and you go to the garage and you grab a staple gun and get a little step stool and you go out onto the, 
into the yard, up to the tree, and you start stapling nice, juicy red apples onto the branches of your apple tree. Well, how long are those apples going to last? Not long. Why not? Because they aren't tied to the source of life. They aren't tied to the tree. You don't have a fruit problem with that tree. You've got a tree problem, right? Your tree has issues. And so when we try to adjust our lives by simply adjusting the fruit, it's all kinds of problems. Number one, that is simply not Christianity. It's moralism. Moralism, now it may be ordered to Christian principles. We might be trying to put fruit on the tree that looks like good Christian character. But it would be moralism nonetheless. It is, as Paul says to Timothy, a form of godliness, but denying its power. Because that kind of behavioral modification doesn't require Jesus. Doesn't require the gospel. It's pursued by mere willpower. Not only is it, is it moralism rather than Christianity, it, it's an inauthentic counterfeit. It may look at times like discipleship, even though in fact it isn't. And not only is it not Christian discipleship, for all of us, myself included, who have tried, who have tried it, know it's impossible, right? Stapling fruit to the branches every time it rots out there while it's disconnected from the tree is exhausting. And Psalm 1 gives us a far better picture. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of sinners, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yields its fruit in season. Authentic disciples of Jesus don't merely uh, try to adjust their behavior because one, it doesn't work. Two, it's not true Christianity. And three, it's inauthentic. Christian disciples experience change and pursue change from the heart. They ask questions like, what am I treasuring? How can I treasure Christ more and these things in my life less? That I might respond to the circumstances of life that you and I experience, the difficulties day in, day out according to Christ rather than according to the other treasures I've stored up in my heart. The life of Christian discipleship is an authentic life that issues from the heart. Third, Christian life of discipleship is an enduring life. Jesus brings his sermon to a close with this question. Why do you call me Lord Lord, and not do what I tell you. Jesus describes their confession of him as Lord in emphatic terms. They repeat it. Uh, there's no exclamation points in the ancient languages. And so Jesus, through repetition, is emphasizing how vocal and intense they were in their outward expressions 
of loyalty to him. But Jesus questions their sincerity because it would seem they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. I would imagine that was just as piercing a question then as it is now. Is it possible to claim to be a disciple of Christ and yet not do what Christ commands? Jesus contrasts them in that place with another kind of person, another kind of disciple in verse 47, who he says does three things. Jesus says he comes to me and hears my word and does them. A disciple comes to Jesus, hears Jesus' words, and does them. Just think about that progression. Discipleship begins by coming to Jesus, by trusting in him, by acknowledging I cannot do this life on my own. But then discipleship continues by listening to what Jesus has to say. Today we do that by reading his word, by coming to places like this and hearing his word read and preached and sung and prayed. We do it in fellowship together as we encourage each other from the word and study Christ's word. But it doesn't end there. The disciple of Jesus then goes on to shape their lives, shape their priorities, shape their decisions, shape their interactions with others around Christ's words. Let me read it to you again, what Jesus says. He says, I'll show you what this one is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. For novices like me, uh, whether a house has been well built is usually not immediately apparent on the surface. It's revealed over time, right? And it comes usually after some, some pressure. Uh, I have some friends in this room who immediately know who I'm talking about, who a number of years ago bought a model home, the home that had served as the model for their community. And man, it looked great, right? But due to its function, what was behind the drywall wasn't always uh, what you would want. Uh, they didn't always use the kind of materials you would want. They had pipes literally run into nowhere. Over time and a few kids and some activity, uh, those, those imperfections begin to be revealed. It looks great on the outside, but over time it's proved that it wasn't built to last. Sadly, this is the one of the ways that we can discern the life of sincere discipleship. Significant passage of scripture for me for the last few years has been uh, Ecclesiastes 7.8. It says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
I don't know if you can relate with this, but when I was younger, I really respected people who started things, you know? I just, I, I just really respected it. When they had the kind of vision and, and drive and energy to say, man, I'm going to plow new ground. I'm going to blaze a new trail. We're going to start this thing that's never been done before. And man, the older I get, the more I respect people who finish things. People who see it through to the end. Uh, people who build the house on a firm foundation. Uh, who may not be as impressive but who build it to last. Friends, so it is with Christian discipleship. Jesus shows us that you will be able to tell the sincerity of a Christian disciple, not just by how they start, but perhaps most especially by how they end. The disciple who lives according to Christ's word endures and finishes strong. When storms come, Winds blow, Jesus says, your house will not be shaken because it's built on a firm foundation. Families who have come this morning to dedicate your children, I just want to encourage you, do this. Uh, As you are now establishing your home, establishing your young family, I want to encourage you to build it on the firm foundation of the ways of Jesus. Um, I can remember dedicating my first uh, couple of kids to the Lord when they were very, very young. And it's a fairly simple thing to do on, on that kind of day. But in the days following, you will face a myriad of decisions. Decision points in your family that will press on this priority. How will we build our life as a family? When the family calendar is so full, something's got to give. What gets taken off? What events get canceled? What are we just too tired to make it to? Uh, Do the lessons and recitals and play dates and tutoring sessions and overtime hours, do those things adjust? Does my prayer life adjust? Uh, Does life in fellowship adjust? When the family budget doesn't quite balance, and oh, friend, I've got testimonies for you. Come find me after the service. Um, When it doesn't quite balance, what gets adjusted first? And is it our giving? Is it other expenses to uphold our commitment to Jesus while we trust God to provide? In the way we build our home, what what we'll give? What what about when youth sports conflict with corporate worship? If every time youth sports conflicts with corporate worship, our families choose sports over worship, I think we shouldn't be surprised when our children grow up and likewise choose their interests over Christ's commands. Now that I have offended at least half the congregation, I am not saying that you can't ever miss church for a game. Not saying that. What I am saying is you need to consider what your general patterns say about your priorities. What kind of house are you building? 
We make these seemingly small choices over and over again. And over time, we will find ourselves with a house that is either built on the rock of Christ or on the sandy demands of modern life. And so families this morning especially, I want to encourage you, resolve in your heart today that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Give the next generation a firm foundation by building the life of your home around coming to Jesus, hearing from Jesus, and obeying Jesus. Only two houses are being built, Jesus says. Those with foundations and those without. And so it's a confrontational word from Jesus to those disciples and to all of us. What kind of house are you building? Maybe you realize you haven't been building a house that will stand, but by the grace of God this morning, you want to. Praise God for that. Where do you get started? So Jesus made that clear. In John 6, his disciples said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. We begin building our house on that firm foundation when we believe and trust and orient our lives around Jesus. And friends, can I just say, and I know there would be hundreds in this room who would say it with me, who have maybe lived more life uh, than they have yet to live. They don't regret it at all. (laughs) There is no greater joy, no greater stability than that has come for them and all the winds and waves of life than by building their lives on Jesus. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated and invited us into and made us a part of through faith in him. Lord, as we consider this sober word from him this morning and as we assess in our own hearts what kind of house we're building, Lord, I pray that you would help us to turn to Jesus, not away from him. God, that we would not make adjustments in our lives merely by willpower, fortitude, but that we would come to Jesus afresh, hear his words afresh, seek the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to do what we ourselves cannot that we would experience a transformation of heart. God, that the treasures that have overtaken us would be cast aside. That we would treasure Jesus and his ways and his words. And that you would transform us from the inside out. And God, I pray that we as individuals and as families would experience the fruit of having a firm foundation in Christ. We choose to sacrifice other things and build our lives around you and what you've said. Oh God, would you meet us, satisfy us, give us your joy, give us your peace. God, that we would reap the good that you have for us as we follow you and obey your very, very good commands. 
Oh God, we thank you for your mercy and love to us in Christ. We look forward to what you're gonna do in us in our lives and in our churches. We build on you. In Jesus' name.